Welcome to Make Things That Matter, the podcast where we explore impactful products and the cultures that create them. I'm your host, Andrew Scottsko, and if I'm doing my job well, each episode of this show will help you to do meaningful work, make things that make things better, and have a great experience doing it. My guest in this conversation is Mike Saloyo, the CEO and co-founder of Huddle, a startup that brings together fractional SWAT teams of expert builders to help startups generate real momentum on their most important projects within a week. This is a candid conversation about leadership, and in particular, how our egos, sense of identity, and our personal practices go on to shape our company culture. In particular, I think you'll find practical benefit from our discussion about decoupling the concepts of morality and integrity, which leads to healthier team dynamics and accountability. So without any further ado, please enjoy Mike Saloyo. Officially, Mike, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'd love to hear your story of Huddle. Of all the things you and Steph could have worked on, how did it come to be this one? Like, like there's always that moment where you say like, okay, am I really doing this? Are we really doing this? And not those million other things we could do. Like, take me back to that moment. Where were you all? And what had that go the way it did? Okay. So the first word that popped into my head was ikigai which is a Japanese word. I don't remember what all the pillars are, which made me hesitant to even bring it up. But it's essentially the combination of like what you're good at and what the world needs and what brings you joy. And there's actually four of them. For me, Huddle's always been sort of like a passion project. Like it definitely wasn't a thing where I was like, okay, I'm going to test 10 ideas and the one with the best traction I'm going to do. Like, it wasn't like that for me at all. It was really personal. I started my career as an investment analyst, and I'm not one of those people who left Wall Street like, oh, God, thank God I'm out of finance. I still love stocks. I loved being an analyst. I thought it was like the coolest job in the world. I didn't understand why people let me do it. I was like, why (laughs) at 25 years old am I like getting to travel around and meet with CEOs and ask them like the most pressing questions about their business? So I really, really enjoyed it. And I always thought I was going to continue as an analyst and become an investor. And I left Wall Street in 2014 because I was really attracted to a startup called Superphone that I wanted to work on full time. And I thought it would be interesting to dig in with founders and CEOs when they were first making a thing versus where I was covering Cisco and EMC at Oppenheimer, where like, you know, you, we're more worried about like, is the quarter going to be 40 cents or 43 cents? Like, yeah. you know, it, and, and like we were, I was traveling to Silicon Valley and meeting all these founders as part of like the roadshow process for IPOs at Oppenheimer. So anyway, fast forward to like Huddle, which really for me started in 2018. I was pretty selfishly trying to figure out what was the, what was the coolest way to be an investor that I could find. And there was a thing called a startup studio, mm-hmm. which which isn't actually really new, but it started to like gain popularity around that time. And I was like, man, this is like the coolest job ever. Like I can invest in companies and help them build. Like that seems really fun. And at the same time, I was working inside of these different design agencies and startup studios with Steph, my current co-founder. We worked in two different design agencies together. We consulted for a lot of startups inside like Techstars and Expa and XRC Labs and all these places. At the same time, I started the dinner series originally with the first founder and who also happens to be a music producer 
named Ryan Leslie, we started hosting these dinners, which was like bringing together just people that wouldn't normally meet. Like we thought it was cool. Like let's get a bunch of people around a table who wouldn't normally meet. And then I, I started getting to get into some of the like leadership coaching stuff. So then the table to me became more about like, how do I create a really epic conversation around this table? So I did this dinner series called Sundays for a while in Brooklyn, which was basically get a bunch of people making things around a table to talk about life and real shit. Mm-hmm. And through that process, people started to come to me and ask me like, do you know a designer? Because I had this network that I built with the dinner series. So in 2018, I was building another version of Huddle, which was a lot more like a product studio called The New Company. Mm-hmm. And it was really going poorly. I'm going to be totally frank. <laughs> like, we helped launch a bunch of companies, but it was really financially like unsuccessful. And then the pandemic happened. And Steph and I were like, it, there's a lot of other things that happened, obviously. But Steph and I were sitting around and she was advising me on The New Company, which eventually became Huddle. And we were just like, wow, all of our most talented friends are at home Mm-hmm. in their apartment. The ones that have full-time jobs have figured out they can do their work in like two hours. And then there's a lot of our other people, are, a lot of other people in our network starting companies at the same time. And there was no like beta works, you know, like a, like a studio in New York mm-hmm. City. Mm-hmm. There was no place where you could go to like meet collaborators because everyone was home. What if we just did that? Like, what if this actually wasn't a studio? What if it was a platform that just connected founders with our most talented friends? So... Myself, Steph, and a few other collaborators at the time basically started a Slack group and invited like 50 people in, including like 10 VCs, because we thought VCs would like be the people who knew all the founders. And that was kind of the start of it. And the first founder who came to us was my friend Anastasia under this new name Huddle. And she was like, I need a brand. Can you do it partially in cash and partially on a safe note? And we were like, sure. And that was like the first huddle. And it kind of just it went from there. We launched it on... Yeah, we, we put out a product hunt. Steph wrote a product hunt article. Luckily, to this day, we've never done any marketing. It just kind of worked from there. We got to just set the stage. What, what is Huddle for anyone who does not know what it is? Huddle is a builder community. We make it easy for startup founders to join a community, post a project, and get back a team of great designers and builders within 24 hours. From the outside to a founder, it looks a lot like the coolest agency for startups ever. And the really interesting part is on the inside, the, the community of, of builders that we're building is, is, is really incredible. I was introduced to it on the builder side. Yeah. And I was trying to explain it to a friend and she's like, well, so what is this thing? I'm like, look, it's basically like call them and you're going to get this dope team of people you could never hire and they'll be working on your thing by next week. And she's like, oh, okay, cool. Wow. I should, I should have you say it. Fortunately, we're recording. So. We must be doing something right if you got that. I worked inside of all these different ecosystems and they always did a really good job with advisors, mentors, and capital. And then no one could find a UX designer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just more practically speaking, right, the landscape for founders hiring, it makes more sense for them to use fractional talent in the beginning. Even if you have a great technical co-founder or whatever, you still need people to, to scale up whatever it is you're building. 
And it's really hard to find those people. The market for, for agencies is super fragmented. There's a million agencies and it's hard for founders to figure out like which one is good. And then like to your point, you know, your friend who's working at Amazon as a designer making $500,000 a year, it's really hard to like... Good luck with that. Try that person way to come work on your startup. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we made it easy for you to get this like fractional SWAT team of people that it would be really hard to find. I love that explanation. There you go. I think of all the words that resonate with me about Huddle, one that comes to mind is Ubuntu. So I'd love you to start there. Why that word? What does that mean to you to huddle? What about that has become such a touchstone? I am obsessed with coaches. I find the person behind the person to be really interesting. Mm. And I was watching a show on Netflix called The Playbook. And one of the episodes is on Doc Rivers of the Boston Celtics, and he tells the story about how he used the word Ubuntu to get a group of highly talented people to work together. The word basically means that a person is only a person through other people. And the higher you go, the higher I go. So there's no such thing as like actual competition. It's almost another word for abundance in a way. Mm -hmm. In other words, the more you have, the more I have. And I just got fascinated with the word. And to me, it was like the perfect word for huddle, not only because I wanted our internal team to feel like everyone should shine and that nothing you do here is ever going to take anything away from anything else. I also thought it was a great word just for the community. You know, how do we create the ultimate support community for founders? Imagine a world where you're building something and everyone around you is rooting for you because by rooting for you, they're actually rooting for themselves at the same time. Like, that's incredible. Philosophically speaking, it's definitely a key idea. Yes. A really interesting thing I've been thinking about recently is, I don't know if you can relate to this at all. People, generally speaking, when they hear the word ego, they associate it with like, almost like a, like a megalomaniac Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the right word. They associate it with like machismo or look at how great I am vibe. Mm-hmm. But my ego, I think, is actually more of like a, you know, it's kind of like a stay humble kid. Don't show out too much. Mm. Like my ego has me playing small mm-hmm. more than it has me going big. I feel better when I'm playing big. Yeah. I think most people do. I would agree with that. But I think they think their ego is like, do you know, does that make sense to you? Like they think like, like that would be egotistical, but it's, it's no, it's, I think going for the gusto is, is almost like the opposite. As long as it's authentically what you want to create, right? The distinction that it sounds like you're making is there's a difference between healthy ego and runaway ego. Megalomania is sort of a, an ego that's like run away with itself, right? And it, it's seeking gratification, often at the expense of others. Yeah. Very easy word to throw around would be like toxic. But the ego in and of itself is not a bad thing. It's just gotten sort of a bad rap, right? Like there is such a thing as a healthy ego. A healthy ego is a natural, healthy part of human development. Say more about that. The difference is like you don't want to stop there and get stuck there. But one of the things that I, I'm very into in my life is is meditation. I've spent a lot of time Same. on retreat and meditating and thinking and reading and blah, blah, blah. 
a lot of what ultimately is happening on the cushion and in practice is a dissolution of ego. But it's it's more of this idea that first you have to become somebody in order to then become nobody. Differentiation into your own individual is an important part of healthy development. We especially go through as teenagers in our 20s, in our 30s. It's a natural, healthy evolution in our, our growth as a human being. And then at some point, we need to go beyond that, right? We just don't want to get stuck there. So it's like, yeah, you need to become a self so you can go beyond yourself. Yeah. I've never thought about that before. Cool. Like even once. That's going to be a whole thing. That's so cool. I feel like at least in, in Western culture, there's this like tension or at least this assumption that, you know, if you win, I lose. Or if I win, you lose. And it's sort of built in there. That we're almost in this like egoic tension. And so I'm curious if that has shown up either for you or in like some of the projects you've seen over the years you've been working on them. Steph and I both read a book on recommendation from a friend called The Courage to be Disliked. And it's about Adlerian psychology. And mm -hmm. say more. There's a few core tenets in the book. First of all, it's an incredible book. I'm rereading it right now. And we used a lot of the concepts in this book to lead the team. And one of the core tenets in the book is this concept of the separation of tasks. Hmm. And basically what the separation of tasks is, is that your tasks being your tasks and my tasks being my tasks, they're just tasks. The CEO has a set of tasks. Like I view my, I view my role as being the coach. That's the way that I relate to being a CEO the, the best. In other words, like, my job is to make sure everyone on the team performs great. Hmm. Okay. Like, I never thought of myself as a CEO. I never woke up and was like, I want to be a CEO. I still don't actually really think about it. My task is to set the vision, build a team, and hold everyone accountable. My job is also to say no to a ton of stuff. And even if I don't know what's going to work, I have to pick a thing. Mm -hmm. And then I got to get other people to go out and do it. Or I have to enroll them in contributing to it, said more eloquently. Right. And that's just my task. Like the Western world talks, in my opinion, too much about power dynamics. Hmm. It's a really poor conversation because it implies that I have power over you. However, what, what I think is lacking in that conversation is I'm like implying that you don't have power. Hmm. It's a blind mm -hmm. spot, I think. Mm. Right? Like if I acknowledge that I have if I have if I have acknowledged that I have power in a situation, that's implying that the other person across the table doesn't have power. So I I feel like we relate to leaders in the Western world in a big way, like they're the ones in power. Mm. Right? Mm -hmm. There's a different way to look at leadership, which is that I have I've been tasked with being the leader. Mm. in this particular project called Huddle. Mm -hmm. And so the separation of tasks means that when you sign up to work at the company, you have a set of tasks mm -hmm. and I have a set of tasks. And we're both aware of those tasks, but there is no vertical relationship. That's another core tenet of this book, The Courage to be Disliked, is the power of building horizontal relationships through the separation of tasks. Does that? Mm -hmm. I, I don't mm -hmm. know if that lands with you, but... That, that's how I think you can take the ego out of a project in that the, the word ego is a really, really fascinating word because no one really knows what it means. Everyone has a different definition of what an ego is. 
My definition of ego is it's your identity, your, your manufactured self, who you think you are. Mm-hmm. I try not to be building huddle through that lens. I try to be building it like it's, this is my task. I've taken mon- money from investors. It's my task to build the company. And if I build the company, the company is going to serve a lot of people in the world. It's going to serve mm-hmm. founders and help them make the thing they want to make. Mm-hmm. It's going to serve builders and building an independent career and getting the support and resources they need to be entrepreneurial and independent. And that's just my task. Well, I wanted to bring it back to has ego ever sort of like inhibited a project, I think is a question you asked. Yeah, like all the time, because we're all human beings, mm. you know, so I try, I try my best to not make anyone wrong or make myself wrong in, mm-hmm. in that process and just try to listen to everybody, hear everyone out until they're totally empty, which I'm not always great at because I'm reactive and I can be pretty spicy and <laughs> uh, I can, you know, I can be really direct. Like I, I work better when I'm around people that work well with someone who's direct. And I like when people are really direct with me. So it's not mm-hmm. always easy, but I try to just hear people out and make sure that no one feels like they've done anything wrong. And, and that's kind of it. I could talk a lot about the word integrity, which I feel like you and I could geek out on too. Oh, we absolutely could. The next piece of this is now that we have a separation of tasks and we have horizontal relationships, then it just becomes about integrity. Did you do what you said you were going to do or what you knew to do? Hmm. I'm really interested in integrity for a lot of reasons. Like it's a pretty deep value of mine, but also it's one of those words that like we have all seen on like a, you know, a cringeworthy corporate values poster somewhere in our lives. And yet, when actualized and operationalized into a culture, there is actually almost nothing more transformative or more powerful. And so what I'm really curious about is, first of all, how do you define it for yourself? But more importantly, how do you implement that? Like, how do you create that environment where it actually is part of not just this thing on the wall, but like, this is a part of how we do things like day to day, week to week. It's not just some token word. Yeah, it is. I'm just picturing like how I met your mother in Barney Stinson's office. (laughs) With like the big integrity poster in the back. And that is certainly cringeworthy. I'll I'll answer it in in like two bullet points. Bullet point one is you got to get rid of morality. Hmm. So there actually is two definitions of integrity in the dictionary. And I I wrote a blog post on this that likely no one has read. Um, It's okay. We'll link to it. We'll we'll give it some juice. Yeah. (laughs) That'd be dope. There's actually two definitions of integrity in the dictionary. One of them is really rooted in like right or wrong or your, your, your morality, like what, you know, which morality is mm-hmm. mm-hmm. great. In a lot of ways, there are certain things that are right and wrong, you know? Yes. We can agree there is such a thing as morality. Yes. <laughs> and so I'm not discrediting morality. I'm just saying for the definition of integrity, I think it's better served put elsewhere in this use case. And then the second definition is about being whole and complete. And, you know, you can be whole and complete as a person. There's also tasks that can be whole and complete. So I try to focus on definition two, which is just that, like, let's say we have a team stand up, which we do every week. And the, every week the team says, here's what I said I was going to do last week, the most important task, and here's what I did. And if they didn't get to a thing, the reason you want to throw out morality integrity is because then it becomes, well, I did something wrong. And when people feel like they did something wrong, they hide. Mm-hmm. or they get reactive, or they blame. There's all sorts of things that people do when they feel like they're wrong. But if you can make them feel like it's just so. Yeah. I said I was going to do this. I didn't do it. And 
Okay, great. Well, what was blocking you? Well, I was blocked because I didn't have enough time. Okay, great. Like what else is on your plate? Like I want to have constructive conversations with people and I want to give them the benefit of the doubt. In other words, if you didn't do something, that's okay. Let's actually talk about what was in your way so that we can get you unblocked and moving forward. Mm -hmm. So my definition of integrity is more about a task or a system being whole and complete. Is the wheel turning or is it not? Like another definition of this that I, I got from my friend Anastasia and that Stephanie I use is like, there's just a car hmm. going down the street. Like when something's not working, you're always taking it to the shop. But like there are Teslas available, like self-driving cars mm -hmm. are available, right? So when something mm -hmm. isn't working or it's in breakdown, we just try to get it back working again. And if, you know, mm -hmm. and if the car keeps on breaking down, well, then you need to make choices in life. Maybe it's, you know, maybe there is a a new teammate that you need or there's something differently that you got to do so that you can continue to cruise down the highway. Yeah. I think the number one thing is throwing out right and wrong and trying to have generative conversations with people. Now that makes total sense. And I, I really resonate with that, especially on the sense of like, if we call back to that notion of ego, right? If you If one can shift their identity or their sense of identity, their sense of self out of the work itself. So like, I feel like that's a, a lot of the place where this starts is people are so wrapped up with like who I am, what, what I do is who I am, especially for creative types, right? Like anyone who, who's done any kind of creative work, we, like you are investing some sense of yourself and your energy into it. And there's, so there's this weird, at least in my mind, this weird tension we all have to kind of dynamically balance between investing and being divested at the same time fully give yourself to the work. And at the same time, you have decoupled your sense of identity from it because then you can take on the direct like, hey, this thing didn't work. Yes. Or, hey, this is not doing what we hoped it would do or whatever. And then that opens up the space for this sort of morality-less discussion about like workability, which is kind of what I'm hearing and what you're saying here. Absolutely. That's a really cool way to look at it in terms of ego. I'm, I'm glad that tied all back in. Because if you can look at the work objectively, like I love Rick Rubin and I love that he's been out on yep. all these podcasts recently. I've been fascinated sure. with this guy like ever since I found out who he was. And that's one of the things that he says is like he was asked in a recent interview, like, how do you give feedback to an artist? And it's like, you got to take out the work and look at it objectively and say, like, have you thought about this? Is there a way that we can make this better? Versus, you know, I don't like that or that's not good, right? Like it's, mm -hmm. it's actually only your ego that would be wrong if you didn't, like going back to my standup example, right? Mm. If you, if you said you were going to do something and you didn't do it, or you said you were going to deliver by Friday at 5 p.m. and you didn't do it, it's only your ego that would have you saying, how do I get out of this? You know, what am I going to do? I don't know what I'm going to do. I got to like, I got to, like, and then you start, people start strategizing and, and then people start manipulating before they even know they're doing it. And manipulating, manipula manipulation is like a really big word. So I don't want to like, mm. you know, yeah. Yeah, yeah. accuse anyone of manipulation. But you start like strategizing rather than the egoless thing to do is be like, hey, it didn't get done. And then you can actually have a, a conversation. And, and in startup land, it biases you towards looking at data also. Yeah. Like we, yeah. Don't, we yeah. don't get to pick what works and what doesn't work. We, we can pick paths and actions to take, but then the world tells you if they want something or if they don't. 
So that's another mm-hmm. way to take your ego out of it is just to look at data, right? Like if you're in a yeah. group project and you ship something to customers or whoever it is you're shipping to and people don't like it, you don't get to pick that. You can choose to listen to them and look at the data and make a new choice. But it's ego to like continue down that same path in a way. It's kind of a denial of reality. Yeah. It's like a willful denial of what reality is telling you, which which then sort of opens up this this question that I, I I've never actually talked about this in the podcast. Maybe maybe it's interesting and you want to explore this, but I, I've often found myself wondering like, what if what reality wants? This is bringing in the morality a little bit. Yeah, it's like what if what reality wants is bad? Like what if what the market wants is bad? How do we think about this? I don't I don't know the answer. I'm posing a question. This is something I am legitimately curious about. And don't know. Okay. I can only give you... I can only share my view on this. Yeah, yeah we're just riffing here. Like, I, we're just exploring new ground together. Or my, yeah. my experience. Yeah. I'm glad I'm your guinea pig on this, I guess. I'm, I'm the guinea pig too, my man. We're in this together. We're in this together. We got this, we're Mike. This together. We can do this. Ubuntu, Ubuntu. Ubuntu. We got this. All right. So I think another piece of having integrity is, is it authentic to me? So if, mm-hmm. if I was... If I was shipping a product to the world that I consciously knew was bad for the world, that would be out of integrity for me mm. because it's not in alignment with what I authentically believe. So that, that's the way that I would view it. Mm-hmm. I don't just believe in this completely libertarian, everyone does what they want thing because it's not, it's not Ubuntu <laughs> to say it. I, I love that we have this word in context now, but. No, it's, it's, it's not just that. It, it is that we are all free and we all have free will and we are on the planet to do what is authentically us. But I think if you take the view that you are connected to everybody, mm-hmm. you start behaving in a different way where what's in my best interest is actually what's in everyone else's best interest. That makes sense. I feel it's circling this, like we're orbiting around this topic of ego and identity and like the source where where one locates their source of identity. Before we started recording, we were talking about meditation and what it's bringing to mind some of the greatest performers in a very like mundane worldly sense, right? Like think of people who have just crushed it in some material worldly thing, right? Like Ray Dalio, for example, right? That guy has been extraordinarily successful on just about every damn metric someone could come up with or Kobe or whatever. Take your pick. And, and I think about one of the common threads they all share is meditation, right? And, and one way, not the, I'm not saying it's the way, but a way that one can look at meditation and like, what is this thing doing anyway? Yeah. Is it, it shifting the locus of identity away from the small self? It's changing what it is we identify as. And I wonder, I wonder if that is the root cause that makes it such a powerful unlock for a lot of these things. I think so. That's the way that I relate to it. I'll share from experience. Like, you know, I'm really convinced that I know who I am. Okay. Until I until I don't know. <laughs> and does that land with you? Yeah. When I meditate, I can more freely see like maybe that's maybe that's not who I am. Hmm. You know? Hmm. What does your practice look like? I have been doing a meditation that is essentially TM. I've been practicing TM since since 2014. 
when I read Russell Simmons' book and he signed it at the Soul Cycle headquarters. <laughs> uh, such a moment. It was such, such a, a crazy moment. moment. Yeah, I kind of learned how to meditate from Russell Simmons in a very completely randomly, totally random way. Like it was completely random how I ended up at the Soul Cycle headquarters. I I think I told you earlier I answered a tweet correctly because I'm, I love music and I've been looking up who produces what track forever. And yeah, I got invited to Soul Cycle headquarters to meet Russell Simmons and he signed my book and I meditated with him and I've been meditating. Literally, I've been meditating. I think I've missed less than 10 days of meditation since 2014. Wow. So it's like, it's just what I do every day. I have a different practice, but it occupies a similar place of primacy in my life. So wait, hold on. Go back to Soul Cycle. So you're at Soul Cycle headquarters, and like Russell Simmons is just like, "Hey, man, you want to meditate?" Or like, what happened? No, what actually happened is I was sitting inside of my cubicle at Oppenheimer, where I was a equity research analyst covering tech companies, and I was a big Soul Cycler in New York City okay. at the time. I was going many times a week, and so I was following their Twitter because the instructors would tweet about classes and all types of stuff. And there was a tweet that said something like, the answer to the question was Russell Simmons. Okay. And I don't remember what the question was, but it was something about like this Def Jam co-founder XYZ thing. Do you know who it is? So I tweeted back and they were like, congratulations, you're invited to this private event at the SoulCycle headquarters to meet Russell Simmons. So I was thinking about quitting my job at Oppenheimer at the time to okay. go work for a startup called Superphone, which was run by a hip hop and R&B producer, entrepreneur, artist, Ryan Leslie. And got it. our first investor was Ben Horowitz. So I was like advising the startup, helping him with his deck, but I was working at Oppenheimer full time and I was thinking about leaving to go join the company. Okay. And so I thought I was going to SoulCycle to like learn about the music industry from Russell Simmons. And he... I had no idea, but he had just written a book on meditation and that's what the event was about. It was like a perk for SoulCycle employees and they like invited a few riders to come uh. like join the mix. So it was like me and like four other people who answered a tweet. But I had already been looking into like meditation. I had already been looking into meditation and I was like, I think I had downloaded Headspace and I was like playing around with okay. it. Was this Success Through Stillness? Is that the book? Yeah, that's the book. Okay. Yeah, I was just looking it up. It's a really good book on meditation. So that was the day that what? Sorry, I cut you off. That was the day that I decided, A, something serendipitous is happening here between entrepreneurship and for my own personal journey, like what I was trying to, you know, I was trying to figure out like what I was going to do. And I was like, okay, there's something interesting here between like learning how to meditate and this guy and who's really been successful in music and he meditates and I'm thinking about joining a music startup and I had to go on this business trip to Stockholm in London, which was one of these like, fly to Stockholm on the red eye, get land at seven in the morning, go to meetings all day, fly at night to London, land in London, go to meetings all day and fly home. Mm. And it was like, I remember being in the hotel in London and waking up in the morning and like going outside and like not remembering getting in because mm. I was just like exhausted. Yeah, sure. And by the way, I loved my job, but I, I was, you know, it was sort of like all these things were kind of coming together for me. So it was, it was, it was the day I decided to leave and go do something new. Wow. 
and I also just have been meditating ever since because the book had a big impact on so, me. So let's, let's tie this back into leadership because yeah. I think this is one of those things that gets glossed over a lot, right? You, you always hear about these topics arising together. You hear a lot of people talking about like meditation and leadership. But I'm really curious, like specifically for you in your journey since, you know, it's almost 10 years now since that day. Yeah. All the stuff you've worked on. Where and how has meditation actually changed the way you show up as a leader? So let me touch on the shift, the shifting of identity first, because I, I don't think I really directly answered your question. When I meditate, I feel like I listen to source or my higher self mm-hmm. or God or the universe or however you want to refer to it. But there's something authentic mm-hmm. coming through that's bigger than, you know, my everyday self. Like, I feel like I tune into what's real for me to say, to say it more like down to earth, right? Like, I feel like I tune into like who I really am more. And it, it's I can mm. I can put aside like the noise and I can make mm-hmm. choices about like who I want to be every day, mm-hmm. you know, instead of making choices based on like what I think I should be or what society thinks I should be or the things I'm scared to do or whatever. So there is that separation. How has it helped me show up as a leader? I think practically speaking, I can be pretty, yeah, I can be pretty reactive. And I think it's helped me be a little bit more chill, mm. practically speaking. Like like the ability to respond instead of react. Totally. You know, like something is happening in a meeting and it's not going well and I can just sort of sit with it and go, okay, you know. Mm. By yeah. the way, I don't always do this. Like ask the people I work <laughs> around. I don't always yeah. do this. Yeah. And um, we're still human after all. Actually, I'll tell this story because I got I I got asked this question on like in a different format, and I sort of like beat around the bush a little bit. Okay, and I thought about it afterwards. But like one of the reasons that I first went into uh, my first like leadership coaching program is because my current co-founder Stephanie, I had hired her into one of her first UX design jobs at a design studio, mm. and we were thinking about leaving that studio and going to work together at another studio. And she told me this as direct feedback, which is awesome. It's like one of the reasons Stephanie and I have such a good relationship is wow. we can talk to each other really frankly. But she said, she's like, sometimes you're really chill and sometimes you're pretty reactive. And when you're pretty reactive, like I don't really enjoy working with you. And I was like, all right, cool. I want to be less reactive. And I enrolled in a coaching program. And then we decided to work together. And, and you know, that was in 20, that was in 2015. Wow. So we've been working together on different things and now we're co-founders for a while. That That candid conversation really set the groundwork for having a really honest relationship, which is really rad. That meditation in particular has helped me just look at the big picture and try to respond. And then I think the second thing it's done is, is help me to be more authentic about the way I want to do it. Say more about that. I've concluded that I can only build Huddle the way that I want to build it. Not in an arrogant way, but in a way where... I can't pay too much attention to what everyone else is doing because it it like clouds my mind too much. Like I only know how to lead huddle from as Mike, you know? Like I can't try to be mm-hmm. I can't try to be someone else. You know, there I think there's practical things from business books and advice I get from amazing investors on our cap table and mentors and things, but ultimately like I have to I have to make a choice to do it my way. And if I don't, then I'm going to, I don't think I'd be very, I don't, I'm a first time founder to be clear. I've helped a lot of companies as a consultant, but like, this is all new for me too. So I'm still, I'm still learning and I'm trying to be like as open as possible to the learnings. 
I appreciate you sharing that. So first of all, thank you. One of the things that that resonated with what you were just saying was this idea, idea that when we disidentify with our normal sense of identity, right? Like the, the person that we walk around as all day, we can become less reactive. So one of the big words in Buddhism is this word dukkha, which is usually translated as suffering. And it turns out like, first of all, that's actually a really bad translation of the word. And we have very limited words in English to actually represent the original concept. And a better one that I have heard and resonated with more is this sense of sort of unsatisfactoriness. But another translation of it that almost rarely, that is very rarely used is reactivity. And it's interesting because like the root of suffering in this sort of picture we're painting here in that sense is reactivity. And so it's just really interesting to think about that as a leader and as a person of like, oh, wow, here's this technique that has these very real practical things about being able to lower my reactivity level. I resonate with that a lot. Yeah, I find that to be super cool how you just described it in terms of suffering, like the intersection of suffering and reactivity. I'm tempted to say, and it's a little bit like meta, but like who's reacting? Mm. You know? Mm Mm-hmm. Who's reacting? Like it's 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 only I'm tempted to say that only your ego is what's reacting anyway. My sense is you're right. Yeah, I don't think your higher self like necessarily gets like triggered or fired up about shit. <laughs> you know, I think <laughs> I don't think that's what it is. Like I I think that uh there is a relationship between uh suffering and reacting like because happens all the time. There's this stuff coming at you all the time. Like leave your house in the morning and do anything. There's stuff to react to. Generally speaking, if you don't react to the things, you'll have a better day than the day that you react to everything. You know? On balance, I think you're right. Yeah. <laughs> it seems to be how it's going for me. Generally, my, my direct experience <laughs> would confirm, would, would agree with what you're saying. So yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and say yes to this. Yeah, it's interesting to think about because like I was, I was talking with a, a mentor of mine, I think it was last week, and, and actually... He's somebody who's been on the show, Barry Brown, and we'll link to his his uh, his episode in the show notes. And we were getting into this whole conversation that's kind of similar to what we're talking about right now, which is this sense of identity and where that intersects with spiritual practices. And so there was a sense of like, for many people, you can imagine almost like, imagine you have a whiteboard, right? And people talk a lot about like work-life balance and, you know, sort of imagine like draw a big circle and you say, okay, that's me. And then there's some circle inside the big circle that is like my work and what percentage of my life that occupies, right? And so is it is it a small circle inside a big circle? Has it completely overlapped who you are, et cetera? And I feel like most of the conversation around work-life balance, or I prefer work-life integration, is, is almost like looking at how do we smush down the work circle and make it a smaller percentage of the 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 who I am circle. But I feel like there's and I think that's valid, and certainly in cases where like the way the work thing is going is not good or healthy. But I think a much more generative flip is to like, let's invert it. What if instead we focus on expanding the circle that's who I identify as and make like, what if I just got way bigger? And what if I got so big that actually the lines of of the circle that I identify with get really blurry and I just start to blend in with like all of reality, which is the whiteboard itself? That is a really wild visual I just had. Where, where, where do you go? Like, how wide does it get? 
it was i don't know it was it was first it started as like what if you expand the 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 me circle but then what it, then it became like well what if instead of just expanding what if it like the line just starts to blur away and like the boundary between you and the rest of stuff just dissolves i think that would mean being in service of other people that's the first thing that comes to mind yeah the egoy version of that we're talking about ego a lot yeah, we are. The egoy version of that is like, oh, I'm so big. Like, look at how big I am, you know? But the expand, it's the same. It's really interesting. The expansive version of that is like, I am connected to everything, right? And so therefore, like, mm-hmm. my behavior impacts everybody. Mm-hmm. Is that yeah. sort of where you're going? In the conversation with, with Barry, it was, that's not how, it was more of like, what if the, what if I am in some way, shape or form, through whatever mechanisms, right? Whether that mechanism is like meditation or service or whatever. What if I am able to sort of get away from the idea of me in the first place and sort of dissolve the boundaries between myself and the world and other people? That was much more of where it was going. And I think you're right. The natural conclusion that seems to emerge from that is like, let's support each other and help each other. Yeah. Less separateness in general. Yeah. Yeah. I am. I yeah. am because you are and you are because I am. It's looking at reality through a fundamentally relational view. Yeah. It was sort of like swapping out the, the fundamental lens there. So that's kind of how it tied together in my mind anyway. Cool. That's how it ties together in my mind too. And I, it makes me think of, it actually brings me back to the courage to be disliked. Okay. Tenet three of that book that I remember is that all problems are interpersonal relationship problems. It's brought up a lot in the book. So you live your life in relationship with other people. Every dollar you make comes through another human being, mm-hmm. period. Like if you hire me to work for you and you pay me money and then I take it and I put it in the bank and the bank lends it out to other people who use it to buy homes and then the part that I don't put in the bank, I go out and spend at a grocery store and then that money goes to the store and it, like money is just being transferred. It's never actually being lost. Like even if you lose money in the stock market, it's not really lost, right? Yeah. It just switch hands. Yeah. So I don't know that more, that more abundant view is a way I think to look at the world in that we're all connected. In other words, like, I don't know if the money example really hit on what you were, what you were trying to say, but this more like connected view of the world in that, you live your life in relationship and all problems are only interpersonal relationship problems. Like every, every problem you have is solved through communication with somebody else. 100%. Have you ever looked into um, polarity management? No, I, I don't know what that is. It's sort of a fascinating, I guess I'll call it a theory model. Not sure what to call it. But it, it's this sort of way of thinking about what the author calls polarities, which is sort of these built-in systemic tensions that are effectively unresolvable, right? They're like, they are built in. You cannot, you cannot solve them in any final sense, right? And a lot of times we, we get stuck on these like unsolvable problems in our lives where we're trying to solve it. Like we're going to do something and this is just going to go away and it's going to be handled and done. And we don't think about it anymore. When you have one of these, it keeps coming back and like it's sort of unsolvable. One of the lenses that I found to be helpful is to flip to looking at it as a polarity, as in this, like, it's a built-in tension. And so there's two poles that are always going to be in some level of dynamic tension. And so you can't solve it. The only way to solve it would be to destroy the entire system. But what you can do is you can manage it. And when you manage it well, 
you sort of get like you maximize the upside of both poles and you minimize the downside of going too far on either. What's a real life example of that? There's a lot. You start to see them everywhere when you look for it. But like a really common one is like self other very close to what we're talking about here. Right. If I only if I try and solve this right on one extreme, I am completely selfish. On the other extreme, I'm completely selfless in a negative way. Like I'm utterly enmeshed. I have given up. Like think of like self other in a relationship, for example, like a romantic relationship. On the one hand, you're a selfish asshole. On the other hand, you're completely codependent and utterly enmeshed. And you've lost, you've completely lost your, your differentiated identity and sense of self. Neither of these is good, right? And you can't solve it. There's no solving like that in a relationship. It's a balance. It's a moving thing all the time. But what you can do is manage it where you have like when managed well, you, you kind of get the upsides of both being an individual and also being in relationship. Yeah. And you minimize the downside of going to either extreme. Yeah. The extremes are typically dangerous places to be, I think. Yeah. I, th- I thought about like being a Buddhist monk mm. and being like completely selfless. And then <laughs> on the other end, there's like... <laughs> you know, an egomaniac who's just really playing the game of whatever, whatever game they're playing, <laughs> whatever game they're playing, you know? So we got like Gordon Gecko and the Dalai Lama. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The money game. and the, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Neither of those things is necessarily right or wrong or is going to bring the most joy. I don't know. Maybe they do for that individual person. We really don't know. We really don't. Speaking of this relational theme that we've had throughout the conversation, who has really shaped you and the way you continue to show up? Wow. Well, thank you for giving me space to acknowledge people. The, the first person that actually came to mind is my grandfather, Manny. I spent a ton of time with my grandfather growing up. Hmm. He was a golf coach. He was my golf coach. He's still alive. He's my last remaining grandparent that's alive. Hmm. And kind of like everything with him is still like, everything's like a life lesson with him you know mm-hmm. like there was mm-hmm. never really anything like surface level i always got something from our us hanging out so yeah my, my grandfather is like big to me and i want to say my co-founder stephanie too she taught me that relationships can be easy i want to say Not in terms of they're not like we're building a company together. Like obviously there's a lot of work, but it doesn't feel draining. It feels generative. I learned by working with Stephanie that I could have working relationships and other relationships that when the people are around, it just feels better. Like things go better. Like you walk into a room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Steph's the type of person where you walk into a room and you feel better leaving it because she was there. That's awesome. My mom also, because she's like really raw and honest. I think I get my, I think I get a bit of my like directness from her, you know? And oh, there's so many people. What a great question. I also, I, I, I had a call with this person last week too, but I had a really good, I had a really good boss at Oppenheimer, a guy by the name of hmm. Itai Kidron. He was my managing director. He was just like really, he was like, it was really funny too, because he was like going into the firm. He was the top analyst at the firm and everyone was like, you're going to, you know, it was like Wall Street. So it was like, you're going to get smoked. Like you're going to be in the office Mm -hmm. till 2 Mm a.m. This guy's like such a hard ass. And uh, it just couldn't have been any different. He also had two kids at the time. 
So I think mm-hmm. he was like at a stage where he wasn't needing to stay there all night anymore. But yeah, he he he. I learned a lot from working with him, just about like discipline, how to like communicate directly, and like just the importance of like really hard work. Really, the importance of getting something done to like completion. Mm, yeah, like we would stay in the office on Friday night and edit like every line of a research report, and I would always be like, "Oh, whatever." There's a few things I'll just do it tomorrow morning. And he was like, "No, we're gonna finish. We're gonna finish right now, and you're gonna leave when you're mm. done." And that was like, such mm. a pain, but it taught me to like just finish stuff. What a great example for for completeness in your work. Yeah, there's something really kind of going call back all the way all the way back to the beginning of the conversation with integrity, right? Of like, there's that sense of completeness in the work. And and what a nice model of yeah, very cool. Well, just in closing out here, Mike, what would you like to leave the listener with? And uh, where can people find you online? And how can they be helpful to you? Okay, I feel like like if I had to come up with a stated purpose for what I'm doing in the world, my sort of message is to just do the thing that you dream about doing. Like I want to help more people do whatever it is they want to do. And I want to connect them to the resources and the people they need to do it. That Yeah, that's my message is like, you don't need to do it how everyone else is doing it. There's no how-to book to live your life. Find what's authentically true for you. Go do it. And, and you'll find the people you need to do it with. Like the more authentic you are, the more you will find the people who really like ride with you. And where can you find me on the internet? I'm at Michael Saloyo on all of the social platforms. And yeah, drop me a note and tell me what you're working on. And I'll probably be ruthless in ensuring that you continue to work on it and hopefully put you in the right place so you get it done. Boom. Love it. All right, Mike. Well, thanks so much for being here and to be continued, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this, I'd be so grateful if you could do me a favor and take about 25 seconds to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That helps me reach way more listeners and it also helps me bring you more great guests. As always, please feel free to reach out to me anytime at connect at makethingsthatmatter.com. And until next time, my friends, leave them better than you found them. See you out there. Mm